All right, take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 4. This week we, as a nation, remembered the events of 12 years ago on September the 11th. And part of the remembering that we do as a nation uh, through these 12 years has involved lots of television coverage and sometimes just raw footage with no talking head commentary over the top of it of the events that occurred and the immediate aftermath of those events in New York City and Washington, D.C. and the field in Pennsylvania. And as many people, Teresa and I sat and watched those images as they came across our TV screen once again. And uh, I was struck once again, as I always am, with the impact that that made on us and on our collective conscience as a nation. And then how quickly that impact seemed to have gone away. Uh, As I was watching that, I was also thinking about the message that we have today and what we're finding in Scripture as we continue to move forward. And and I thought to myself at the time, uh, here is the handiwork of a group of people who are on a serious power trip. Here's a group of people who have decided that they're going to make a statement, a political statement, in a military kind of way, but it's not anything like conventional military stuff. And so we fly planes into buildings just to grab the attention of the people that we seek to influence as those who have power over them. I want to talk to you this morning about power trips, and especially people who tend to be on them. And before you start throwing elbows and uh, thinking outside the box, make sure you start considering this from your chair this morning. One of the things that... uh, As I've gone through this, I've been trying to work through, and I just started noticing a lot of stuff about the world in which we live that is just part of the fabric of the world in which we live, and that is this idea of control. Now, you've heard me say before, and will continue to hear me say, that the essence of sin is control. If you take all of sin that you know that there is, you pull it down into the very central core of what it is, it is that desire to be God, I will be in control. And all of us are eaten up with that problem. I saw that everywhere this week as I was getting ready for this and the images of 9-11 and all that stuff. And I just started looking across our world and I see this control orientation everywhere. Yesterday, Teresa and I spent the day, actually we spent about four weeks yesterday in Huntsville, Texas. Um, The long story is we have a friend from the town we came from whose son plays college football for Texas Southern University. And Texas Southern University were the next victims of Sam Houston State University yesterday in football. And because this friend of ours plays for one of those two teams, his parents were going to be there, so we just all met in Huntsville for the day and sat out at the stadium in 4,010 degree weather all afternoon and we watched this and so I'm, I'm thinking of the sermon because the football quality was um, pretty good for junior high football and um, as I was watching the game I was thinking about my sermon I started seeing this control orientation break out all over the field. For one thing, the very nature of a sporting contest is you have one team 
who is trying to exert control over the other team long enough to win the game. Don't miss that. We call it sport, but if you boil it down, it's about control. In about 30 minutes, the Dallas Cowboys are going to go into a game thinking that they might control the Kansas City Chiefs. It's an illusion. It won't happen. So that's the nature of sports. It's this struggle for control. I'm telling you, it's all through our society. So I've seen it there, and then I started noticing the individual battles for control that was happening on that football field. Because here, and most people, when they watch football, watch the ball and the ball carrier and what's going to happen with all that. Let me tell you, the more entertaining game within the game is those animals that play down on the line. And so you get these gargantuan guys who kneel down. They never in their life would men hunch down like that except they're fixing to knock somebody's block off, which is another way of saying, I'm going to control you in this little battle so that my team can control your defense so that we can move forward and we can win this game. It's all about control. So I started watching these guys go at it. I mean, there's this guy who plays for Sam Houston State. He is huge and mean. He was taking the other guy's helmet off and eating it between plays. He was mean. And he was so manhandling this other guy that it got out of hand. And finally, I saw in that control situation, I saw somebody else step in to control it. It's the guy with the zebra shirt and he steps in and he throws a flag. Now who's in control? You see that? You start seeing that everywhere you go. Now there was another game played a little bit further down the road from Huntsville yesterday. It wasn't much of a game, apparently. Somebody was in control. No matter what kind of awards you win, you got to control today to win today. You see what I'm saying with all of that? Now, that's just sports analogies, and we find control orientation everywhere, but it stretches beyond that. We talk about in these forest fires that we've seen across the western part of the United States this year, and they come on the news and they say, we have so many thousands or hundreds of thousands of acres that are burning out of what? Control. Or we have this fire 40% controlled. You know what that tells me? You don't have any control. Isn't it interesting how many things in life come down to this idea of control? And so you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you have this illness, and we must get it under control. And if yours is not quite to the doctor level, you can jump in your car, and you can drive down the road, and you can go into one of these little convenience stores or a a supermarket or a drugstore, and you can go into the drug section and you can buy a little box full of chemicals and you can take those chemicals and they will control your allergies or at least the symptoms. It would be nice if this control orientation was only on those kind of levels, but the reality is we can go to the video that we showed earlier today of that little family trying to get ready to go to church and you saw control battles all over the place, Right? I'm telling you, control and control issues are part of the fabric of our lives. And one of the things that we find about Satan is that he tries to lure us out of fellowship with God 
by offering us power and all of the trappings of power in the name of control. So let's look at this passage together. Luke chapter 4. We're now into our third sermon, which is also the second of the temptations that Jesus faces at the hands of Satan. And it says this in verse 5, And the devil took him up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all of this authority and their glory. Interesting phrase there. To you I will give all of this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So as we go into this, I want to start with a warning, okay? And this is not really tied directly to the temptation, although it is part of the overall fabric of it that we need to see. So here's the warning. Make sure in your life that you have a healthy respect for the enemy. Of course, in this case, I'm talking about the enemy who is Satan, who is our ultimate spiritual energy. And and I get that out of verse 5 here. So let's look at verse 5 again where it says, And the devil took him up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now I want to stop there for a second because most of the time when we deal with these things, we just kind of gloss over that part and we get to the actual temptation. But this is part of the actual temptation. What I want you to see here is that... uh, First of all, there's a significant debate that occurs among scholars about that part of the verse. Look at it again. In a moment of time, Satan shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, with all of the technology that we have, how would you go about trying to show somebody all of the majesty of the world in that amount of time. I I don't know that we have the technology to pull that off. And even if you could pull it off, uh, could the person even get it all? Don't miss this. Scholars are divided to this day. There are books written about how this occurred. How did Satan pull this off? Let me settle it for you, okay? Save your money on all the books. Here's the answer to how Satan did this. We don't know, okay? It's simple. We just don't know. Scripture doesn't speak to how it happens, but we take it on faith that it happened, right? Okay, but if you say right then by definition you are saying Satan pulled something off that we don't understand how he could pull that off. Whatever else you want to say, that's one powerful dude. But it makes me uncomfortable some of these modern religious people who are apt to order Satan around as if he's their boy. This happened to me the first time, well, not to me, but I was there when it happened. I was probably 12, 13 years of age, something like that, at a Baptist encampment outside of Lakey, Texas. It's called Alto Frio Baptist Encampment. And this was so long ago. We, you know, we rode to camp in Model T's and, you know, horseback not quite that long ago, 
But it was so long ago that at that camp, when it came time for us to do church for youth camp, it was in an outdoor tabernacle. Now, if you don't know what that is, that means it's a church that has no sides on it. All right? And it's not even really finished in the ceiling area. It's just a bunch of rafters and stuff. Now, this is 100 yards from the Frio River. Big oak trees and stuff everywhere. I guess they're oak trees. They're big old round trees. And uh, so what that means is here's a teenage kid sitting at camp and squirrels are running around outside. And I lived in an area of Texas where there was no squirrels, no life of any kind. And so I'm sitting there and I'm hearing the water and birds are flying in and bees are buzzing people in front of me. It's a great way not to listen at church, which is what I was all about as a teenager. And then in one of those services, the music guy for the week said this prayer. And it's almost an exact quote, and that's been a long, long time ago. It made such an impression on me. This is almost exactly what he said. Now, as he said, let's pray. So we all bowed our Well, you know, some people bowed their heads. The rest of us were looking around watching who wasn't bowing their heads. And so he starts in the prayer, and here's what he says. Satan, we order you out of this place. I'd never heard a prayer to Satan before, or at least that's what it sounded like to me. And so I thought, I got to listen to this. He grabbed me and pulled me right into the whole discussion. And he goes on, you don't belong here. You don't have place here. And so we order you out of here with all of your distractions and all your strongholds. And he's praying this prayer to the devil. I was a good Baptist kid. I didn't know anybody did that. Certainly not in public. Now, that is what it is, and that probably gives into several discussions between us. But my bigger problem was not so much that he did that, because I kind of understand some of where that came from. My bigger problem was all of the people after that who started all of their prayers that way. And so now you have these punk teenage kids, of which I was one, And we suddenly felt like it was okay for us to order the devil around like he was a little bully on the playground and all we had to do was say something and he had to do what we said. That captures the mentality that a lot of people in our day have about Satan. And we give lip service to the authority of Christ over Satan, but we stand in our own strength and try to order him around. Let me tell you something. You better have a healthy respect for this enemy because he will eat your lunch and spit on you in the process. He hates you. He wants to get to you. He's not your friend. And he's certainly not your boy. And he stands before us, if we're even a threat to him at all, he stands with incredible power and authority in this day. So be careful that you have a healthy respect for him. Here's a, in case you need a little scriptural support for that, keep your place here and let's turn over quickly to 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we have Simon Peter. While you're turning there, let me make sure you get the context right. Simon Peter is one of the 12 disciples. He's not just one of the 12 disciples. He's also one of the three that were in Jesus' inner circle. After Jesus resurrected and goes back to heaven, Simon Peter for a while becomes the central person in the life of the church. He is a big shot guy, if you will, in those early days of the church. He writes this letter to a bunch of Christians who are being persecuted in 1 Peter. 
But before he gets to that point during his time, one of the, the, one of the most disconcerting verses in all of the New Testament for me is that time when Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Satan has asked or has attempted or is in the process of trying to sift you like wheat. That's the road travel translation for the day. The picture is of Satan who targets this guy. And so this same guy who falls to another set of temptations and denies Jesus totally in his hour of need, writes this letter to those other Christians in hours of need. We start reading in verse 6 of chapter 5, 1 Peter, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And here's the verse, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, Lion sinking someone to devour. Let me stop for a second and let's make sure we get that picture. So many people in our day treat Satan like he's nothing or like he's a nobody or they even totally deny that he's there. Let's make sure we get what Simon Peter just said. He's out like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. Last night, 2 o'clock in the morning, I hear Teresa's dog outside barking. It's really not her dog. It's really my son's dog, but we'll let Teresa have him today. Now, I've got to tell you this, okay? Just to be real honest with you. I, I told you up front, I'm always going to be transparent with you up here. Um, at two o'clock in the morning, when I get woken up by a dog that's barking, I'm not thinking spiritual thoughts like love your enemies. As a matter of fact, one of the first things that goes through my head, well, first of all, you know, you kind of you come out of that coma we call sleep, and you think you hear it barking, and so it somehow intrudes into your dreams, right? And so, and, well, I won't even tell you about all that. So I, I finally come out of it, and I realize that my dog is, excuse me, her dog, is out there at the fence next to my neighbor's house barking just incessantly. And I'm thinking great spiritual thoughts. And so I laid there for a little bit, and I thought, okay, i got to go do something about this because I know my my neighbors over there going, I wish he would do something about that dog. I kept waiting to hear a gunshot, never heard it. So I got up, and I went out there. And uh, so, now you know, I wear contacts, and I'm mostly blind without them. And so I slipped on my glasses, and I go out into the backyard. And he's probably, you know, uh, from here to where Brian's sitting over there, maybe not even that far from the back porch, but he's on the side fence and he's just going off. It's two o'clock in the morning. So I walk over there and I don't have a gun with me. I don't have a flashlight with me. I just am thinking to myself, I'm going to have a dog for midnight snack right now. And I walk over there, and of course, he's jumping around. He's agitated. And I reach down to get him. And as I reach and grab for him, of course, he jumps out of the way. I hear this. So I flew to the back porch. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, idiot, take a gun and a flashlight. Not necessarily in that order, but so I get... I get the flashlight, not the gun, the flashlight. 
And I go back out there, and he's still barking, okay? But now, I'm understanding why he's barking, okay? Because that's a scary sound. I don't care who you are. So I get over there, and I shine the flashlight, and there's two little eyes looking at me. And I pull them, pull it up far enough, I get close enough, and I see that it's a possum out there, okay? Possum's head is this big around. You ever seen the teeth on a possum? I mean, they're like long, wicked-looking teeth. Straight out of the mouth of hell, this animal must have come. At 2 o'clock in the morning, anyway. Now, as real as that situation was, how does that compare to a roaring lion? I'm not trying to get us to be afraid of the enemy. But I am saying scripture is full of reasons for us to have a healthy respect for him as an enemy. The reality is so many people, even people that fill up our churches, are beaten up and beaten down because this enemy is really good at what he does. So don't just tip your hat to, yeah, I believe there's a devil. If scripture is true, and it is, he is your enemy, and he seeks to have his way with you. Jesus said the enemy comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, and he's good at that. So don't just kind of tip your hat to him. Recognize the reality of that whole situation, and then let's take another step now. Okay? You be careful about the reality of who he is, but you also have to recognize that he doesn't want you to have fellowship with God. And he is so good at what he does that he sucks us into this part of us, this part of our basic nature, and that is the desire to control and for us to have power over our situation so that we can control it. One of his most effective tools in compromising our fellowship with God is that he appeals to our desire for power. That's what he's doing in this passage. These verses as he comes to Jesus with this second temptation. His appeal to desire, to our desire for power and all of its trappings now is centralized in what he says to Jesus. So look at it again as we look forward. By the way, while we're doing this, kind of hang in your mind any of those power trip people in your life. You know the ones I'm talking about? The people who are just intent on having power over you? I, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I know I'm trying to get to that verse, but let me go ahead and say this. Uh, I said this, I, think, I know, once before, so I'm going to repeat it, and then you don't have to hear me say it again. But it fits so well right here because it's, ugh, and it's unfortunately, I'm the example again. You know, we had a situation as we were growing up with our children, um, we have three, and then the two boys miraculously found wives, and so they're both married, and, uh, but when these kids were all little kids, um, wow, they were like sinners. You understand what I mean by that? In other words, they were just like your kids, and I didn't have to train them to be selfish. They just were. I didn't have to train them to try to be in control. They just tried it. And what we found was early on, I mean like early on, 
If we didn't do something to try to channel that and to try to conquer some of that, we were going to have problems later. By the way, this is not part of this sermon. It's just just general parents. If your kids are two, three years old or two months, three months old, and you're having trouble controlling them now, if you don't do something about that now, wait till they're 12, 14, 16, 18 years of age. Okay? You better do it early or you'll lose the ability to do it later. So we used to beat our kids incessantly. Well, not, not really. Well. There's always a lesson. So every day was lesson day at our house about this kind of stuff. Because they're full of sin. And the essence of sin is control. And they're just like you. They want to have it their own way and do their own thing. But see, by the time they get to be 18, it's not cute anymore. Like it is when they're 18 months. If it's ever cute. And so our oldest son right out of high school, decided that he was going to be the king of his own universe. Unfortunately, his mother was part of that universe. And he was, I mean, he was giving her fits, going after her. And finally, one day, she let me know what was going on. I sat him down, and I said, let me tell you something, boy. I don't let any other man in this world, I would never let any other man in this world talk to my wife the way you're talking to her. So you're not going to do that anymore. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to lay down. There's two rules in this family that you need to know. Here's the first one. I'm the king. Here's the second one. Your job is to keep the king happy. That's a terrible way to parent, okay? It's terrible. Our children survive us somehow, God's grace only. That's a terrible way to parent a child. Don't do that, and certainly don't attach me to it, okay? I'm telling you, it's a wrong way to do it. But doesn't that capture how we live our lives? Tell me if you're really honest that every time you crawl in behind the wheel of your car, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I'm the king. When you go to work and the people around you won't do it the way you want it done, you know, they keep putting paper clips in the wrong section of the desk organizer, tell me you don't think you're king and they ought to do it your way. Tell me when that husband of yours, no, let's don't go there. Power trip people. Our world's full of them. Our churches are full of them. And Satan knows that about us. And he goes to that central part of who we are. And he says, look at all this stuff. You can be king of the world. And we say, as it should be, I should be king of the world. So I want you to pull all of that together. And let's take another step here as we see. I, I never did read it, did I? So here we are back to verse And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all of this authority and their glory. And he appeals to that part of Jesus, that human part of him that is the same as us. That is, we look out there and we see what's there and we say, ah, I could be large and in charge of all of that. I want you to show you real quickly here a couple of subtleties that are at work. 
First of all, I want you to get that Satan is speaking from experience here. He's an expert at trying to be in charge. He's an expert of the power trip individual. Remember that passage, those stories that we have from eternity past? That in heaven there was a war. How could that happen in heaven? And the answer is, some angel, according to Scripture, stands up and says, what I say every morning and what you say every morning, I will be God. Remember that out of the Old Testament? And that angel, whose name is, there's your homework, stands up, I will be God, and God says, tell you what, no. And he sends him out of heaven. He sent him to this place we call earth, and he has been given temporary custody, if you will. The same one who says to Jesus, I'll give you all of this stuff. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that the temptation that he gives is for something Jesus already has? (laughs) You can have all of this. And I'm sure Jesus is going, "Uh, duh, I already have it all. I'm God. Hello. But see, he's appealing to that human part of him that wants power and wants control. Fortunately for us, Jesus will have none of that, but that's the appeal. And we're not nearly as good as Jesus was about dealing with this kind of stuff. So he comes at us and he says, let me tell you about something that I know. You could be God, you could be in charge of all of this stuff. That's just like the devil to pull us in on his downfall. Because it's his downfall. Scripture is clear that he may have a season here where he's been given temporary custody, but the end of it all, he doesn't in charge of it. He's not in charge of anything. And he loses. It's just like him to pull us into that, and we're naive enough to buy into it. Well, sure, I look at me, I'm awesome, I should be in charge. So we buy into it. Sin rarely is satisfied with individual results. It always involves or impacts other people. Remember that when you think you're sinning to yourself over there and the whisper of the devil says, nobody will ever know. Just go ahead and take it. Nobody will ever know. Just go ahead. She'll never find out. The problem with all that is it's a lie. And one other thing I want you to see very quickly, this is the subtlety of it all too. Satan doesn't even really have the authority, but yet he tries to give it, but he doesn't really even try to give it. Notice again what he says. This is verse 6. To you I will give all this authority and their glory. Now listen. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. How did he get it in the first place? Is he really in that much control if somebody had to give it to him? But here's the, boy, this is the insidious part of it. In the bottom line analysis, if he can give it, then he also, by definition, has the ability to take it back. So who's in charge, really? So who's in control, really, when he says to you, you can do this, you you should be in charge. I'll give it to you. It's mine to give. You need to hear in parentheses, and it's also mine to take back, which means you will work for me now. 
giving in to sin sets in motion a series of consequences that sooner or later will be totally out of your control. You need to hear that when he's knocking on your heart's door saying, God, go ahead. It's all right. I'll give you the authority to do that. It's okay. Before it's all said and done, you'll be out of control and in trouble. So fortunately, and let's go to what Jesus said. I'll do this very, very quickly now. Jesus' response to all of that is <laughs> typically Jesus. He sees through it. He sees that it's this thing about control and allegiances. In order for him to get this supposed control, he's got to switch allegiances. And he won't do that. And so he goes back to a verse that's actually out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's in verse 13 if you go back and read it sometime. But that's, that's an important thing for us. It's the part of the scripture where God has given the children of Israel this set of instructions as they go into the promised land. They're camped on the Jordan. They're ready to go across. And he's reviewing all the stuff that he'd done for them in their wilderness wanderings. In Deuteronomy 6 is where we have the Shema, where it's a central part of life. And even to this day, Jews recite it several times a day. They put it in these things on their doorposts. They roll it up in a scroll, and it's there because it's part of one of those things. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and him only. You shall love him with all of your heart, with all your soul. It's so important that when Jesus was asking the New Testament, what's the greatest commandment? He quoted that one. It's a God-first kind of thing. And that's what he quotes from here. Immediately after the Shema, we come into this little section in which verse 13 is, and it's there that Jesus says, now you're about to go in, and you're going to win this promised land, and you're going to be great and powerful and in control. But God quickly says, don't be fooled by that. You worship me because you don't get anything other than what I give you. So Jesus, referring back to that point of reference, moves now into his response to Satan's offer. That's not really a good offer in the first place. And Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and only him you will serve. It is a matter of allegiance. So when I fall into temptation, I abandon my allegiance to God. And every time I do that, I get diminishing returns out of it. So what do you do with all of that? My simple question to you today is, who's in charge in your life? All of this posturing for control gets you where and what? Jesus reminds us our ultimate allegiance is to the God of all the universe who sent his son to die on a cross to take control over our control problem to pay the price of sin. What have you done with that? What will you do with that? A God who can say I'm in control. Also says to you, I love you. I have a plan for your life. Just trust me. Let's pray. And so, Father, we ask you to drive the message of this home for us. Many of us spend every day fighting battles for control. 
We try to control our environment. We try to control our bank accounts. We try to control the people around us. We can't even control ourselves. We need you desperately. So help us to have ears that hear through the lie of the devil and hear the words that scream through eternity. Worship me, the Lord your God. Serve me, and I will give you a life that will blow your mind. Help us to make it so in our own lives, to trust you, to bow the knee again to you so that you might be elevated to the proper position of our lives. In Jesus' name.